Well, uh, this afternoon on the Godcast, I am delighted to say that Rachel Mann uh, joins me for a chat and a, a bit of an interview. And just to tell you a little bit about Rachel. Rachel is a British Anglican priest. She's a poet. She's a feminist theologian. She's a trans woman who writes and speaks and broadcasts on a wide range of topics, including gender, sexuality and religion. Um, Rachel, just tell, tell people where you are now. Where is your kind of home church at the moment? Thank you, Alex. I'm down in South Manchester in uh, Burnage. I'm rector of St. Nick's, St. Nicholas Church, Burnage, and I'm area dean of Withington. Great. And you're, you're a canon at the cathedral as well, is that correct? I, I am, yes. I don't yes. know how these things happen. They just, um, yeah, people ask you to to do these sorts of things and it's very hard to say no to a bishop when he asks you to become an honorary canon but absolutely we well i wouldn't know <laughs> your day Maybe will come your Maybe day will day. Come. <laughs> well it's really lovely to welcome you to the godcast i've got lots of questions so without further ado rachel um let's just start off with something quite straightforward like we've all going through uh, the covid situation at the moment how's how's life been for you well, it's been a mixture of joy and challenge, um, uh, problem solving, but also great opportunity. Um, we, we've been fleet footed down here in Burnage and we managed to go very digital very quickly. We're glad to be back in the building now. I think my key challenge, Alex, um, which is a challenge faced by many priests, is policy versus people. And they shouldn't, it shouldn't be an opposition, but I spend so much of my time, particularly at the moment where I don't know what the restrictions in Manchester are gonna be in the next five hours, let alone, you know, the next five weeks, yeah. thinking, uh, what's the policy gonna be? What's this, what does this mean for our hall rental? What does it mean for that? And then the other side of it, of course, is the people, because mm. we, we don't become ordained to be managers, really. I think we, we do it. Yeah, I've had some, there, and it's about the pastoralia. Yeah, I've had some quite interesting conversations. Uh, I interviewed Giles Fraser last week on this very subject, and also Quentin Letts was very outspoken in his um, sadness that the church had kind of willfully just shut the doors. And um, and uh, you know, I think there's there's lessons to be learned. I feel, but uh, what's been some of the biggest challenges for you then, Rachel, down there? I think the biggest challenge is, 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 is supporting people who don't have the financial power to get on Zoom and use technology, um, who have been asked to stay housebound um, and not being permitted, except in the most extreme circumstances, to just go and spend time with those people and just finding the ways to adapt to that reality. Um, yeah, you know, the big headline here in a place like Burnage is things like um, people getting enough food. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm chair of our local food bank. We've gone in the past seven months from being a tiny little local charity into a medium sized charity. Mm -hmm. That's partly because of the wonderful generosity of people. But yeah. the, the demand is enormous and it's only going to get bigger and it's you know it's ensuring that people are fed that people are prayed with and that that people know that they're comforted mm. at the end of yeah. of their lives i think well, um we we started a food bank uh, when covid began at the back of a car that went to a vestry hall and now is in a chapel and and just it just echoes what you've just said rachel it's just gone bigger and bigger 
and uh, there is no end at the moment and that's fine because we'll keep doing what we do but uh, it is a big it is a big issue um just moving on a little bit rachel a standard question now on the godcast have you ever been to burnley Indeed, I have, and I'm a big fan of Burnley. I, I attended university uh, in at Lancaster University, amongst other places, and um, friends from Burnley. I have been to Turf Moor on many occasions, back before it was redeveloped, when it was really quite a terrifying place in the late 80s um, to, to watch um, Burnley lose 5-0 to Port Vale or something right. like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm big big fan of Burnley actually I think it's a terrific place lovely great and um and just a, a question about your own faith perspective have you have you always been a Christian Rachel or is it something that that came over a period of time well it depends on you know how pompous want to be about this I want to say you know looking back I've been a Christian since I was baptized as three months old you know that's my kind of Catholic take on it but I had a massive conversion experience in my mid twenties. I'd abandoned faith as a teenager, partly because I just thought God was was cruel and evil. You know, I I knew I was trans from a very very early age. Um, used to pray that God would uh, make me a girl every single night. You know, for years, and that didn't happen. <clears throat> and then, and then I just thought, oh, if there is a God, then He's evil and He's wicked. Gave up on Him, but He didn't give up on me. And I had the cliched evangelical charismatic conversion at 26. It's massive. Changed mm. my life completely. Just if 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 you may, Rachel, we just go back and you said you knew from a very early age. Was that um, something that uh, you kept in your own mind, or did you share that with other people, or? Was it a very private experience? I mean, no, I mean, it was one of those things. I mean, there, there was no language for being trans in the 70s beyond tabloid exposés on the front page. I mean, I, I remember seeing, I think it was Caroline Cossey, the Bond girl, who, um, you know, was outed in the sun in about 78, something like that, 77, 78. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is this is real. Mm. Um, you know, I'm not alone. But it was an incredibly lonely thing from about the age of four through till I came out at 22. Right. And terrible, terrible weight to carry, really. You, you, say, you say you were angry with, with God. Was that because you felt that way or, or just well, it just, I just think teenage it's just like, angst as well? I mean, there's, gosh, there's <clears throat> loads of teenage angst. You know, I mean, I've, I've always said that being trans is, is just very dull and ordinary, really. Um, people think, oh, God, that's weird. But actually, it's one particular expression of, of human angst. We're all living with it. And, you know, things exploded for me when I was 12, 13, and my body started to change in the ways in which bodies tend to do. Mm -hmm. And um, I was, you know, a teenager, as well as, um, you know, dealing with this inner stuff that mm. I couldn't articulate. I mean, it's hilarious. I think, you know, one of the things is worth saying, and, you know, probably, you know, I, I hope this resonates with a lot of trans experiences, is that I feel I went through a second adolescence when I was 23 and transitioning and sort of dealing with a whole set of other, um, you know, hormonal, emotional shifts. Um, mm. But yeah, I think a lot of the anger just very much came from just a sense of, well, if there is a God, then why would he do this? Yeah. And, you know, and then thinking, oh, well, there must not be a God then. And that's scary too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So this evangelical experience that you talk about, how, how did that come about? Well, I mean, it's one of those hilarious, I mean, it's so cliched, it's, it's really hilarious that um, I've been feeling chased by God for years and years and years. I mean, I, that's the only way I can describe it is God would not let me go. And, you know, friends at university were Christian and I think, oh, it's a load of rubbish. I mean, in my college at university, I put this sign up in my first year, which um, to put the polite version said F off Christians on it. Um, and when someone's that angry and upset, it usually means that they're ripe. <laughs> for something you know they really do believe in god at a very deep level uh, in my view um but yeah I'd, I'd felt god drawing close to me for years and years and years um and this invitation to pray and it's really scary when you've worked really hard to become the person who you sense you're called to be as a trans but to have transitioned completely as i had and then have a sense of being invited to offer it all back to god and when I, I got down on my knees and prayed, and it, hilariously, I didn't know this at the time, this was on um, the day of Pentecost. It was Whit Sunday, uh, 1996. I was at my staying at my parents. And I said to God, if you are there, then I am yours. And I meant I was going all in mm. and saying, if you feel that the decisions that I've made are wrong, you will let me know. And to my shock, and wonder and awe god gave me back me much more completely than i could ever imagined in more challenging ways than i could imagine that yeah. ultimately led to ordination yeah and throwing my whole life up in the air yeah. but being profoundly loved at the at the genetic level almost Do you know what i mean that that sort of you know in, in bone of my bone flesh of my flesh level yeah <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> i think what you said about kind of this is what you want for me i am yours i i struggled with that because i i didn't come to faith no i i've changed i changed that statement i'd always had a faith but didn't come to church till much later in my life and, and i remember uh, my vicar who's now retired a lovely chap called reverend richard said in one of his sermons that um, of course to become a christian you have to be prepared to give your whole life to god um and I really struggled with that for quite a long time. I was kind of like happy to give him bits that suited me and, and work my life, you know, almost diarise God, which I think a lot of people still do. But it was a big, big challenge for me. Could you just say a bit more about, about how you just were happy to give it all to him? Yeah, except that, you know, we did never know quite what bargain, I mean, it's not a bargain, but we're not, we never know quite what we're offering when we offer it. Yeah. Because I went all in. But the truth is, is that, you know, the gift of faith is precisely that, a gift. And it was what it was required for me to set out on the journey. Now, can I say sincerely, hand on heart, that I've in the 25 years since or whatever, that I've given it all away still yeah. and been an obedient servant? Of course I can't. Because when we say, I give you my all, Lord, we're giving our all in that moment. And then we discover that, well, because we're shattered and we're broken and, you know, let's use the word sinful, mm. that that's a lifetime's work mm. of self-offering. And that the invitation and the gift and the challenge from God is one of slow conversion. So I had a massive conversion experience, yeah. but the conversion doesn't end. 
no, because absolutely. they're always a work in progress. Which kind of leads me on to the next question, kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, very well being a Christian, but then um, in your situation as trans, then to contemplate ordination, I'm guessing that must have played enormous kind of mind games and, and, and all sorts must have been going on, not just from yourself, but from others, I would guess. Well, yeah, yes, absolutely. And you can imagine there's some raised eyebrows and certainly, you know, I, I, when I first became a Christian, I was worshipping in an evangelical charismatic setting and, and those people who knew my trans backstory, I think there were a few raised eyebrows. Um, Did you ever... Uh, I, I was chatting with someone yesterday. Go on. I, well, I was going to say, did, did you, were you ever kind of really attacked for that? Uh, so. No, 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 absolutely not. No, I mean, I, you know, one of the things that I think, you know, I, I, I always want to give pushback from those people who say, oh, the church is a wicked, cruel, evil place. It doesn't like its LGBT people. Well, yeah, it, there's a lot of evidence trail for that. But there's also actually, because the Church of England is a local organization filled with actual human beings, there's far more love, affirmation mm. and trust unrelationship than ideology or, or doctrine being thrown at you yeah and, and I, think so I think Rachel that's really wonderful to hear because you know we do get a kick in as a, as a church we've been in the press uh, again in the last few weeks for for things that are just really unsavory and unpleasant and and um, it kind of annoys me because you think oh crack we're making two steps forward and one step back and, and uh, you know, uh, my curate is uh, LGBT and my congregation love her. I'll tell you that now, they absolutely love her. And there is a lot of support out there, but I think it just gets kind of lost in translation or, or just deliberately lost sometimes, I feel. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there is a media that uh, narrative out there that just wants to poke at the seeming hypocrisy of a church that says we're about love and peace and yet then de demonstrate that we're at war and that we are selfish and, and hateful. So we, that's twas ever thus. And equally, one of the issues with the Church of England is that we're treated like a, in a monolithic way, as if we were the Roman Catholic Church with a magisterium and a pope at the top. Whereas actually what we are is a series of dioceses and a, you know, a, a, um, a house of bishops with archbishops who are first among equals, and then just hundreds, thousands of parishes. And in those cracks in between all these different institutions, people want to insert this identity, the Church of England, and say, you know, this is what you all believe, or this is how you all behave. Mm. Whereas actually we're an incredibly diffuse institution and in some ways it's it's diffusiveness is part of the issue one of the reasons why um we often model indifference to survivors or are rubbish to lgbt people or global majority people is because we don't join things up in such a way that it genuinely creates active effects yeah rachel can i can i ask you about um something that's on my mind just come in there. <laughs> um, a lot of our congregations are quite elderly in the Church of England, and um, uh, this issue of LGBT and, and 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 not just that, but female priests as well. I think there's kind of this kind of a cloudy feel around churches that that people are just going to um, 
oh, I'm I'm of a certain generation. I don't want all that. But actually, I found my congregation very encouraging. I think there were there was a sense of uncertainty at first when our Reverend Kat Akia came and joined us. Um, but but I actually think there's a real willingness to to make an effort and try. And, and I think that gets um, pushed to one side as well to yeah. just. Be, Oh, the older generation, they just need to be understood. I, I never I, I never underestimate the older generation. Um, and in fact, I always hope that's one of the gifts of the church back to society hmm. is that we demonstrate the value and power and wisdom of our elders in a way that our society denigrates. Yeah. And and um, I think what is fair to say, Alex, is that if you are a woman, if you're LGBT, if you're black, um, if you are, you know, a, from a global majority setting, when you go into a church that's never had ministry from such a person before, you will end up being seen as a representative of all those people. Yeah. And there's enormous pressure that comes from that. Yeah. But, you know, gosh, people don't live in church bubbles of any generation. You know, 90 year old grannies who people say, oh, you know, oh, they can't they could never change. Actually, the conversations I've had with people in my congregation when, you know, when I was very uh, when I when I, I, I wrote a book, Dazzling Darkness, about being trans and they read it, uh, older members, they said, oh, well, you know, that's like my nephew or, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. My neighbor um, yeah. has a trans daughter. And suddenly you think, oh, people live in the real world. Yeah. And I think and a lot of them, nuance. Yeah. And I think they do. They really do. It's really nice to hear that, that positive aspect, because. Like I say, I don't think we always hear it. Now, now I'm not sure, I don't know whether you're gonna speak in such positive light or not. Um, I just would like you to maybe explain, particularly to uh, people who might watch this who are not regular church folk, you, you sit on General Synod. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. Um, and our Bishop, Bishop Philip, is, it makes uh, some funny remarks about General Synod, but um, I was wondering, what you make a general synod and if it's fit for purpose. And if you could maybe explain to our viewers um, what, what it actually is. Sure, I mean, general synod is essentially parliament for church. It's that bit of the church, of the established church that used to be handled in the houses of parliament. And it got taken out in the, through the church assembly, I think in 1970, and is now, it's, it's a legislative body. So what the decisions we make there become the national law of England yeah. in regard to church matters and the Church of England specifically. Is it fit for purpose? I think it's worth saying this is that in my relatively short time on Synod last three years or so, um, I have been stunned by the level of wisdom the depth of wisdom actually that is embodied there. Mm. There are people who know stuff about stuff that I could never imagine. <laughs> and it's encouraging to know that the church has that depth of wisdom. Mm. Is it representative? Of course it's not. And that's a profound issue as we travel on for the Church of England, because it's it's the governing body of the Church of England. And it's, it's too white, it's too gray, it's too male. And therefore, arguably, it's too stale. Um, it prioritizes the careful and the cautious over the entrepreneurial and the imaginative. 
And yet it is a place where, as I say, there is great wisdom. I think it's a frustrating body to be part of. Mm -hmm. But it is also a place that if we are to try and model good governance, I, I, I want to hear what the alternative is, really, you know, mm. and I, I, I think that um, it's determination in the last two years to become a place where things are simplified is a positive sign. But we need people to stand for General Synod. It's yeah. no good complaining about it. You know, you have no. to stand for it to change yeah. it. Yeah. I love what you said there about the wisdom. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm not particularly academic, to say the least, and I love being with really clever people. And looking at them and almost being in awe and uh, I think it's a real joy uh, and uh, it used to make me quite well, I don't know I brought out the chip on my shoulder I suppose but I really love it now I love being around clever people uh, that, that's why you're on Rachel <laughs> you are you are you are you have the gift of flattery Alex <laughs> right I want to move on and one of the reasons is uh, I wanted to ask you as well is that you are a prolific writer and have no fear Rachel we'll, we'll plug your book at the end but um, I, I love writing. I write in a different genre. I, I like writing comedy and I do dabble in a bit of a poetic comedy from time to time. But um, where did your love of writing come from, Rachel? That's a, a great question. I mean, the love of writing for me comes from a love of reading. Okay. And it's one of those things I often say to people, you know, they will say, how do I get into poetry? How do I get into not writing novels? How do I get into this? I say read loads. Because you know it's in it's in reading loads that your that that sort of great muscle, that writing muscle that is your brain gets exercised and charged yeah. up, and then you and you also discover what's possible and what's viable and what freaks you out and what puzzles you and what excites you. Yeah. So I'm you know I've always been a great reader. Big trigger moment for me though for writing poetry specifically was getting desperately ill in my late twenties with Crohn's disease, um, losing my then job losing my sense of direction, worried about, you know, who's, who's God in all of that. Mm. Um, and like a lot of people, I, I started writing some pretty desperately bad, very sincere verse about my sufferings and my pain. But that then just opened up fresh seams and, seam mm. and, and, and possibilities. So, yeah, illness and suffering was a big trigger for me. Right. You see, I, I've got a... Um... I wouldn't say a real love of poetry, but I've got a, a, a quite a, a strong interest. And I, and, I, and I worry that people are now going to, oh, crack, he's going to talk about poetry and press the off button. But I want you to stop. I don't want you to press the off button. But it, but it is true that it, it, it's a bit for the middle classes, isn't it, Rachel? Oh, it's a bit, you know, it's a, a bit, bit high and lofty for some people. Or, or am I being unfair? Well, it's also, I think, it, is it fair to say, and I, 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 I loved my teachers at school, but it's often badly taught as well and that puts people off you know it's taught as often like a puzzle oh and you've got to have the be really clever to solve it mm. whereas most poetry is best heard and read out loud and you can feel it and get the sense of it before you understand it yeah it's got an image issue and it's you know it's always been considered the greatest of the written art forms but now it's got a tiny tiny audience novels you know mm. have absolutely kicked to the butt of of poet of of poetry um i just think though alex start from something that you like and dare to go beyond that because every person i i know pretty much has something that they like 
yeah. in poetry. And, it, and you must know this as someone who regularly takes funerals. How often do people reach for verse and poetry? Absolutely. So yeah. it's there to speak into the big things. That's right. But yeah, yeah you know, people like me, the sort of pillocks like me who, you know, you know, write a page poets, you know, and write all this sort of clever verse. You need to have read the Greeks and all of that, you know, mm. and all of that sort of nonsense. Mm. Yeah. We perhaps give it a bad reputation, but there's a lot of poetry out there which is genuinely accessible. And I would say, you know, I think people can enjoy my poetry too. I mean, it's worth saying, if you really want to get to know something, don't you invest, invest time in it? If you yeah. want to be a, fan, a real serious fan of film and television, you don't just watch the soaps. Yeah. You know, you stretch your taste yeah and it's the same with poetry and visual art and everything yeah Rachel this time is absolutely whizzing by I've just looked at the clock and thought crikey and um, but I do I do want to ask you um you you wrote uh, a book for advent didn't you for Chris uh, on the words yeah. of Christina Rossetti and um uh, in the bleak midwinter um moves me every time I hear it and every time I sing it just unpack that for me why 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 does that get me do you think it gets you i mean partly the the the, the it's the music you know um it, it was it holst who did the famous setting and there's also the dark setting the music just is gorgeous but it's 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 inner music it's the inner music of the poet poem that gets you alex every time and the brilliance this is the brilliance of rossetti is that she's so good she doesn't need to be clever. And she gets to the simple heart of the matter. Yeah. And her repetitions, you know, snow had fallen, snow on snow. And you think that's enough. But then she says, snow on snow <laughs> in the bleak midwinter long ago. And all of those sounds just work beautifully together to capture a world. You're there. You only need to hear it once and you are there. And she takes it down and down and down until it's the mother and child. And then, oh, the, the absolute twist in the tale. She says, and what about me? What about us? What can we offer? She takes that tiny moment that changes the whole planet, the whole universe, the birth of the Christ child, and then puts us in there through a question. That's why it gets you, Alex. Yeah, it's lovely. Oh, thanks, Rachel. That's really lovely. I love that. Uh, and uh, and you're right. You know, by exploring something, leads you to exploring another. I've been I've been reading a few of her poems, and there's one called Autumn. I, I presume you know it. <laughs> but but another another really beautiful piece of poetry, and um, and it does lead you to other things. And uh, yeah, so if if people are watching this, don't be afraid to pick up a, a poem or have a look online or. Or, or just put in a famous poet's name and see what comes up. Um, we are, time is absolutely flying by, Rachel. Um, I want to um, talk about your new writing because you've got a book and this must be very exciting for you, Rachel. You've got a book due out any day, haven't you? I, I have, yeah. In fact, you know, I've, I've had three books out this year. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna skip through two of them. The first one's Love's Mysteries which is a, a theology book all about living in a precarious world. And it has some meditations on COVID and just on, you know, living with the fact that our bodies fall apart and our loved ones die and all of that. And I'm very proud of that. That was out the end of last month. In November, I've got a Lent book out based on 
um, Elton, the Elton John biopic, Rocket Man. Um, so it's, it's a meditation that's been inspired by that film. But yeah, the big one that's out the end of next week is The Gospel of Eve, which is my debut novel. And oh my goodness, I'm excited and nervous about it. It's um, set in a, this might put some of the viewers off. Um, <laughs> it's, it's about a group of people who are, it's in the nineties and they are training to be vicars, but this is the first time women have been allowed to train. And they are in this little theological college just outside of Oxford. And they are obsessed with what we might call medieval religious practices. <laughs> and this leads them to cross some taboos and boundaries. It is a thriller. It's a murder mystery. It's a page turner. It's um, a chance to hopefully have a few laughs about the weirdness of religion, but at the end of it also to make you really think about the line between what is right and what is wrong, what is holy and what is profane. Lovely. Rachel, will you, how will you judge the success of that book? Will it be on uh, how many books are sold? <laughs> I'll tell you or, what, or the Alex. If, if a writer ever says to you, I don't care about the sales, they're, they're trying to pull a fast one on you. But I have to say, I, because I'm, a, I'm just vain, <laughs> I, I, I love a good review. I love a good review. In fact, very first review of The Gospel of E came out today. And it was a five star out of five, and it was called a must, a must read. And it, it made it made my breakfast delightful to see, to sure read that did. over breakfast. So I love, I love. Of course, everybody wants to sell books. You you want it, it's you know it's as the same way a musician wants to sell records, but to to be well reviewed is a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't know, but uh, but I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is, and. Uh, I, I just what you said about you know um, college. I mean, I can only imagine what humour. I mean, it, it just made me think about my time at college and uh, the laughs and the and the gags and the ideas and uh, it's wonderful. Absolutely, yeah. and just say, but it is uh, just to reassure the lawyers out there. It is an entirely fictional. Uh, it is a work of fiction. <laughs> yeah. So this is going to be in shops as well as online, is it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, um, if if you you know you bob down to your local book bookshop and they haven't got it in, they'll be able to order it and get it for you. And I always say, try and shop local where you can. Um, but yeah, it's available where wherever books are sold. Yeah. Well, it sounds like if the review, the first review is anything to be. Uh, uh, judge, uh, judge of it, it's going to be a great success. Rachel, it's been really lovely that this 30 minutes has whizzed by. I've, it's been a bit of a quick, uh, turbulent trip through a bit of your life. Maybe we can meet up again sometime and hopefully we can meet in person as well. And you're very welcome to Burnley. And uh, I'm thinking about maybe inviting you over for a, maybe a patronal festival here or there. Oh, that would be terrific, you know. And yeah, no, it'd be a great honour. And it's been terrific, Alex. But um, you know, what is it that um, our, our Jewish sisters and brothers say at Passover next year in Jerusalem? Well, you know, next year in Burnley, perhaps. That and be uh, that would be great to meet up. Yeah. Well, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for your witness. Thank you for your ministry in, in uh, such a, a, a one of my very favourite places, the Manchester area, the whole of it. And I uh, wish you well, Rachel, and I hope the book's a great success. Thanks very Every much. Every blessing. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.